to begin, before I start speaking, I want to ask you a question. We're talking about the relationship between science and religion, and we're talking about how that relationship is explored in the media. The media, incidentally, by which I, I don't just mean television or radio or the newspapers that you might read, but also books, advertising, films, uh, blogs, Twitter, Facebook, and anything that is there as a platform for the expression of ideas and the discussion of ideas. Let's group all of that under media, new media, whatever language you're most comfortable with. It's the way in which we meet in certain forms because the construction of an understanding of the relationship between science and religion is not just generated by, by big books and important books, important though they are, but sometimes is more significantly generated by the popular media. And that can be something as brisk as a sentence in an, in an advertisement on television, which can help to create an impression of a relationship which may or not be true in fact. So let me ask you a question first of all. On the basis of all the media that you have experience of, just shout out some of the stories that come to mind for you of science and religion in the news, in the media generally. What comes to mind, recent or not so recent? Can I have an assistant? Thank you very much. (laughs) What, what comes to mind? The God particle, the, the Higgs boson. You'll have heard Tom waxing lyrically recently about that on Radio Ulster. Professor Peter Higgs had this theory in the 1960s. And at CERN, in that five billion, uh, is it dollars or, or euro? Five billion something or other. It's the same thing right now. In that five billion, which is worthless now, um, experiment that they've created at CERN, they're trying to find... Uh, verification, if you like, of of this theory which explains how matter gains mass in the universe. It's called the God particle in the media uh, and it was first called the God particle for good reasons because the original papers written about it were were, were emphasising the elusiveness of this this particle, this uh, subatomic particle. And to express the the elusiveness, one of the writers called it in in a paper the goddamn particle because you couldn't goddamn find the thing but the editor decided that was a little dodgy as language so changed it to the god particle that's where that word comes from but of course and that's an example of what we're talking about as that sweeps its way through the mass media it gives the impression oh they're looking for god uh, they're looking for the God particle. Um, that can go either way in, in your reading of that expression. It could mean if they find it, we don't need God because we find the God particle, which p- explains everything. Or, or it could mean um, if we find it, it's confirmation that there's something going on that gives intelligibility and meaning and purpose and uh, expression to the universe. Neither of which is true, of course. It's just uh, a journalistic media age expression for a scientific term. It's a tabloidization of a, of a scientific term. But you get the point I'm making, that those simple words, just one word, can give the impression of something else that's going on. So yes, the search for the Higgs boson, they still haven't found it. They've glimpsed it, have they? They've just about glimpsed it. I'm not sure how you glimpse something if you haven't found it yet, but there you are. That's, that's, that's physics for you. Any other science stories? Anything in the news? Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, then, there, you see, there are, pe- there are people, you're right, there are people who are trying to find scientific evidence out there. You get those stories all the time, and, 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 and they pop up and, on blog sites often, where people think that they find scientific evidence of a chariot or of the, of the ark or, or of something else uh, that is mentioned in the Bible. And uh, they're very popular stories. They, le- they lead to shelf loads of, of books, most of which belong in the science fiction section. Raiders of the Lost Ark is, the, is, is exactly the point I'm making, yeah. 
Do you remember Eric Van Danigan? <laughs> Chariots of the Gods. Yeah. We're into that territory, yeah. Right next to you. On evolution. Uh, why, God, why Darwin was right. See, I remember our thoughts for the day. Yes, that got a lot of talk, didn't it? Um, yeah, that, that got a bit of a local um, me- media story around it. That's a Presbyterian minister, Simon Henning, who, who spoke up. Uh, was that last year? Was it just last year? It wasn't in 2009. It wasn't during the anniversary year of Origin of Species. It was just last year. And, and he said positive things about uh, Darwin, which in other parts of the world wouldn't be a news story but you know we are in one of those places not unlike Alabama where stories like that capture the public's imagination um, any other stories that come to mind for you anything at all oh yeah you were listening to Sunday Signals this morning were you <laughs> that's right uh, so there's been, so there's, there's been um, there's been a, a development in the in a treatment um using embryonic stem cells, which is not much of a development. It's early days. You know, everyone's being, being careful to add lots of caveats. But yes, and, and I think it's a good example of, of what we often don't talk about when we talk about science and religion, because when we talk about science and religion, we almost inevitably talk about physics or biology. Um, but it's important to remember that science is much, much wider a, a project than, than simply those two disciplines. Others? What constitutes a science religion story for you? Not quite science religion. Uh... <laughs> oh, there you are. <laughs> I was just about to come back. <laughs> Go ahead. Women's Hour Wednesday morning. Ooh. Uh, psychic medium type lady charging 250 an hour to heal people, pitted against the, the regular medical experts. Right. Yes. Yeah. And if you read the Ben Goldacre blog, you'll, you'll get lots and lots of those kinds of stories of, of where, where someone who's properly credentialed in science will pursue the claims of those kinds of things and, um, and, and will, will offer evidence, usually to show that you're wasting your money. Yeah. Also Stephen Hawking. Do you remember Stephen Hawking and that story? Uh, I've got the story in front of me, 2010. Here are some of the headlines that accompany that story. Stephen Hawking, quote, God did not create universe. Has Stephen Hawking ended the God debate? He wishes. I'm going to be in a business here for a while, uh, notwithstanding what Stephen Hawking has said. Uh, that's a very interesting story because th- th- this is a, obviously an important scientist, um, though actually at the Faraday conference, Tom, I, I do remember you saying quite cheekily, he was more important in the past than he probably is today. And, and that, that's fair. And, and um, Stephen Hawking is a brand. Stephen Hawking is a celebrity. Stephen Hawking is a, a persona, almost the embodiment of science in some people's mind. And the fact that he's in a wheelchair also adds a certain poignancy to that, to that image. But he hasn't proved that God doesn't exist. And he hasn't proved that God could not exist. And, and, and in fact, one could go further than that. You couldn't prove on the basis of what he's done that God does not exist or could not exist. It's simply not, it just doesn't follow. And there was a slew of um, not only theologians like Alistair McGrath, people like that, uh, who's scientifically qualified as well, of course, with a PhD in, 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 um, in was it microbiology? Microbiology. Uh, but also scientists, very distinguished leading scientists, stepped forward and said, you know, th- this, is, this is again a tabloidization of science. He had a book to sell, of course. It doesn't, doesn't harm you when you're selling a book if, if you can offer people proof that God doesn't exist in the book. There's no proof of that kind in that book. So, so what, what, he, what he was doing really was dealing with some scientific material, some scientific work, and then stepping beyond that, uh, into the territory of surmise. That's how I would describe that. But because of who he is and because of the image that he carries, the story went around the world. Stephen Hawking has spoken. There is no God. God's incompatible with the universe. It ain't so simple. Other stories, we haven't mentioned creationism yet. Are you all just nervous or something? Um, we got close to it. Or intelligent design theory. Lots of debates about those, the, the, the Republican candidates, of course, running for president now being asked 
everywhere they go in primary debates, whether they believe in evolution, whether they believe in intelligent design theory, whether they think both should have a place in the schools. In Northern Ireland, we, we again have a local debate about those issues in that we have some MLAs, not least the chairman of our education committee, arguing that although we should teach evolution in the schools, we should also tell children and young people that there are alternative explanations for these things and that there are debates about these things. And this leads you into a, a, a debate in itself about the nature of science and whether they constitute science as propositions and whether they belong in a classroom that is designated as a science space or whether they should be treated in the RE classroom. There's no debate that they should be treated in the RE classroom or the history classroom or some other classrooms, but whether they should be treated in the science classroom is the nature of that, of that debate in the school system. Um, David's going to get excited now because I'm talking about space. Uh, because the, the, the boundary of a, of a science classroom, when you, when you label it a science classroom and, and you, you add a kind of scientific sacredness to that space, don't you? So that if somebody brings a proposition into that space, it almost legitimizes the proposition by merely being discussed in that space whether it's a laboratory or a classroom in a high school. So there's a debate about um, who should be the guardian of that space and the basis on which you can even talk about those ideas in that space. So we are, we are discussing that, and, and we'll have more to say about the relationship between the United States and this place, Northern Ireland, as we go uh, in, in respect of that discussion. So lots of stories out there, and what, what I simply ask you to keep in mind... When you, when you think about these issues of the media and science and religion, is first of all, there's a massive fragmentation of the media. The, the notion of the media is changing very speedily. If you watch the Levison Inquiry, you get a sense of just some of the debates that are going on about the concept of the media. Within science, there's a debate about what constitutes science. That's an unresolved debate. Um, people have been arguing about that for a very long time, but it, it's not resolved. And there's a debate within theology about whether some ideas uh, are evidenced in the scriptures or evidenced in theological tradition or, or whether they have some other historical explanation. For example, creationism. How does one deal with texts in the Bible which speak of creation in the context of, of the 21st century? I want to suggest that journalism generally in dealing with these issues, and I'm not talking about science editors and science specialists who, who have expertise in dealing with them, but journalism generally in dealing with these issues falls into certain tendencies which are problematic, which I think we should acknowledge, which I think we should explore, and which we should challenge. There is room for education here within journalism. The first tendency I would point to in dealing with a lot of these stories is the tendency towards simplification. That's what we do in journalism. We take complicated ideas and we try to simplify them to express them to a mass audience. Now, there's an old saying in teaching that you have to understand deeply in order to communicate simply. And that's true. It's absolutely true. The best teachers, the best communicators are those who know a subject inside out, top to bottom. They're not skimming along the top of it. And they, they communicate with ease and they communicate with simplicity because they have that depth. That is simply not the case in the average newsroom when it comes to these issues. You find in the average newsroom or in, in other places, including someone's loft space when they're blogging, um, fast-paced communication, where there is little time for reflection, where there is little time for that deep understanding that needs to be gained before you try to communicate it. You don't just see it in science issues, incidentally. You see it, for example, in history programs. We're having a conference, I'm chairing a conference at the BBC next month, uh, called... Um, a festival of history and broadcasting. We're bringing some of the, the big-name TV historians over and editors and, and history writers, and we're going to talk about the nature of television broadcasting of history programs. 
And one of those sessions will be entitled, Is Television a Danger to History? And it is, because when I'm making a television documentary right now, we'll broadcast it later in the year, about the Ulster Covenant. This is the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Ulster Covenant. And so we'll put in a 60-minute documentary about that. And, and I've just finished writing the first draft. And, and what you do is you get all these history books around you. You go and speak to all these experts. You, you try to inform yourself as much as you can. And then you try to develop a narrative across 60 minutes of television that is almost a linear narrative. It's, very, it's a storytelling narrative. It has to have pace. It has to have color. It has to have sequences that are... Some are short. Some are fast. Uh, there are different formats. In. One minute you're interviewing somebody. Next minute you're doing a piece to camera. But it's driven by a rather simple narrative, a rather simple storytelling narrative. But ask any historian of any period about any subject for more than 10 minutes about what was really going on and you will discover it's a mess. It is not simple. There is no simple linear narrative. So it is an imposition of a simple linear narrative that we're engaging in. And that's why I'm suggesting that television can sometimes be a danger to history when we even engage engage in the history book programs. Probably even more so when it comes to science, yeah? Because at least with history you have a chance. Try explaining quantum mechanics in a simple linear narrative and you will lose even the Radio 4 audience um, within seconds. So there is a tendency to simplification, which is great and it works perfectly well when it comes to an ordinary news story. There has been an accident on the M1. Two people were involved. One person is currently in hospital in a critical condition. Simple. Quantum mechanics... Not quite so simple. Even the Higgs boson. Look at the diffusion of confusion that has accompanied that story around the world. The tabloidization, the, the, the mixed up hopes, the misunderstood nature of the public's response to the story. And that's with the best efforts of journalists to try and translate the story. Second tendency I would call your attention to is a tendency towards conflict. It's more exciting if there's a bit of conflict in a drama. Great colourful characters in conflict. Have you ever read a novel that didn't have conflict? You wouldn't want to read it. Have you ever watched a television soap opera that didn't have some conflict? Characters colliding, storylines crossing. If there's no conflict, for some reason... We human beings have no interest. And there is a tendency in journalism when it comes to stories to find the conflict, to put the conflict in the studio. If I've got a seven-minute item on any subject, we're going, at some point we're going to ask ourselves the question, who disagrees with what that guy's saying? It doesn't matter what you're saying. Who disagrees with that? Well, get him in too. I'll have a ding-dong. Oh, wait, four, five, nine, five, 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 six, seven, eight. <laughs> Join in the ding-dong. Let's get the calls. I mean, there is this tendency that we have in, in, in all journalism, not just phone-in shows. It's everywhere. News programs everywhere. To try to set up uh, for the public's entertainment as much as anything else, to keep their attention for as much as anything else, to add drama, pace, colour, interest to the story... The fact that there's a raging row about this. Sure, it's news, isn't it, if there's a row? The religion-science discussion, when it's dealt with journalistically, is almost always a conflict story. Almost always. God versus science. Faith versus reason. Something versus something else. Creationism versus theistic evolution or evolution or something else. Now, it is true historically that there have been episodes of conflict in the history of science. Of course there have, in the history of everything. Uh, It would be untrue and irresponsible to pretend that the relationship between science and and religion has been a conflict-free relationship. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that we need to check ourselves against this tendency that is formatted within us as journalists, to go for the conflict, to find it and to foreground it. 
And while we're on the subject, just as a minute ago, I did a bit of deconstruction on the meaning of the word media and on the meaning of the word science. Let's also, just as a footnote, when we see the phrase religion versus science, realize fairly quickly that's a meaningless statement. Meaningless. Uh, There are many different kinds of religion. There are many different forms of science. There are many different kinds of people involved in both enterprises. And some are overlapping. And sometimes when you see a reported conflict and you look deeply into it, which you don't have time to do when you've got a five o'clock deadline, but when you look deeply into it, you discover, actually, and take the Galileo case, for example, the Galileo story, that's not a science versus religion conflict. There's conflict in there for sure, but it's not a science versus religion conflict. Galileo was a Christian. He wasn't pretending to be a Christian. It's quite clear from his correspondence he's a Christian. There is an institutional conflict there for sure. Different parts of uh, the institutions of the Christian church are at war with each other. There are, there are power plays. There are personalities. Uh, Galileo's uh, old friend, the Pope, is not a happy man when Galileo is mocking him, as you can imagine. There are personal investments in all of this. So whenever, whenever you get categories like religion or science, I simply say... Dissolve that large generic category very quickly into um, a multiplicity of relationships, personal, political, scientific, ideological, and, and even where the people are having the argument can shape the kind of argument they're having. And, and there are places where a particular argument is happening whereas there are other places at the same time where it's not happening. There are reasons for that. And if you're looking deeply to avoid some kind of simplification, you need to be aware of that. And again, I say, if you have a five o'clock deadline, you may not have time. And Wikipedia doesn't do it for you. And you can't rely on it. Because there's there's a question of authority there and how much you can rely on that. Um, in this conflict category, I will also include new atheism. Yeah, I mean, if there is an example, actually, a very good current example of the conflict narrative being generated, it is in, it is in the narratives of the new atheist movement. Because the new atheist movement, particularly Richard Dawkins, and I have a lot, a lot of time for Richard Dawkins. I like him personally. He's a terrific guy. But he's wrong when he says that religious belief is a kind of scientific explanation. He's just wrong about that. It's not. And, and if he was right, he could get going with his argument, but that happens to be the first premise, so he's got a problem there. And, and so what he says is, we, we've got a conflict here because we've got two competing scientific explanations. One is the contemporary scientific explanation for our universe and for humanity's appearance in it. And the other is a scientific explanation that made sense many, many centuries ago, but no longer makes sense. It's an out-of-date scientific perspective. Now, if he's right about that, people of faith should have a problem. But I happen to think he's wrong about that, because the nature of um, theological exploration is quite different from the nature of scientific explanation. And there are many atheists who disagree with him in his treatment of religion as a form of scientific explanation. It's a straw man argument, actually. It's a very easy place to start. If you, if you, if you win that one, the rest almost follows um, ineluctably from it. So we've got tendencies towards simplification, tendencies towards conflict. Thirdly, tendencies towards the present. We're obsessed with the present in journalism. News is new. History's not. History's old. But you need a firm footing in historical context if you are to begin to understand the science-religion relationship. That relationship wasn't begun yesterday. It wasn't begun last week. It wasn't begun at the end of the last Labour government. It's a very old set of relationships. And because we have this sort of obsession with the contemporary in our society, journalism is a reflection of that, um, we sometimes park the historical back, background and foreground only the contemporary immediate appearance of a conflict. Uh, 
Now, imagine you did this with human beings. Imagine you did this in your own relationships. Imagine you're with your partner and you're having a row. And someone else is trying to explain why you're having a row. But they limit themselves only to information going back for the last 10 minutes. Not the last 10 years, not the last 20 years. How much of a true understanding of your relationship will they have? That's the danger of an over-reliance on the contemporary and the present. You need the long view in order to get the true context. Uh, and, and I think that tendency towards the present can be one of the most dangerous ones for understanding a complex relationship like religion and, and science. Fourthly, a tendency to see science as only physics and biology, a point I made earlier. Um, physics and biology are quite sexy subjects, you know. Um, you've got Einstein, you've got Darwin. These are sexy subjects, you know. Um, yeah, psychology used to have big, sexy people like Freud, but we don't talk about him anymore. Um, and it's kind of dodgy stuff to a lot of psychologists now. Um, who's big in nanotechnology these days, you know? Um, who, who, who's big um, in one of the other human sciences? There, there are reasons why we have an attractiveness problem with physics and biology, because they're very attractive topics. But they, that over-reliance in those subjects does no service to the complexities of it all. And for that reason, incidentally, um, I would add as an example of a religion science story, one that is not often treated as a religion science story, it's more often treated as an ethics story, and that is the continuing debate about gay marriage, same-sex relationships, homosexuality in the church, these debates we're having here in Northern Ireland all the time, uh, about... Um, proposed therapies for helping people leave their homosexuality behind and move on to heterosexuality or grow their heterosexuality potential and become straight. Um, those, I think, those kinds of debates are best positioned within the science-religion discussion because by positioning them there, rather than in simply the Christian ethics discussion, it forces us to, to ask scientific questions about what's going on in those proposals and whether the therapies are evidence-based, and whether the therapies are ethical, according to what we currently know about psychotherapy. Next one, I'm nearly there. Fifth point, a tendency towards journalism. Not journalism, journalism. That's uh, the term Nick Davies gave us in his book, Flat Earth News. That is, there are many journalists who are just rushed off their feet and they have to get the copy into the papers. This is a particular problem for, for the print journalistic world. And there is too great a reliance on press releases, particularly press releases to do with health news. That's the most common press release of all in journalism. And you often find that you'll, you'll get a news story printed with a byline given to a journalist. And if you were to go find where those words came from, they came from a press release. I've done this myself. I've, I've written press releases for documentaries that, I, that, I've, that I've presented. I've written the press release and watched it become a newspaper story with someone else's name at the top. And I wrote every word in it. Just lifted, printed, someone else's name at the top. Now, I'm not unhappy about that. It was pretty good press that day. I wrote it. Why wouldn't I be happy about that? But that's pretty questionable when we're talking about business news, health news. We're not talking about entertainment here. We're talking about other kinds of... So Nick Davies has made some really quite significant um, challenges to journalistic practice. And he was making them again recently at the Leveson Inquiry talking about this. Uh, and that tendency to journalism has another form. That tendency to journalism can lead journalists, when they're dealing with a science-religion topic, to simply accept prejudices unchallenged. That's another form of it. You take the press release and you run it. You take a common status quo understanding of something and you run it without engaging your mind, without engaging your reflectiveness. And without that reflectiveness, we have irresponsible journalism. And finally, what am I, six now? 
six points. It was only John Stott who used to say things like sixthly. <clears throat> I once heard John Stott preach a sermon where he said seventeenthly. <laughs> I heard him preach once in, in, in the States. John Stott thought everybody could speak Greek. You know, when he preached, he just thought everybody knew Greek. He, he opened his sermon with the words, I'll never forget them. Metanoia, as you will be aware. <laughs> anyway, a tendency to both biblical and scientific illiteracy. Very important, this. How many times have you gotten irritated reading a newspaper or watching television and you're saying to yourself, why doesn't that reporter know the difference between creation and creationism? Massive difference. Biblical illiteracy is the answer. Uh, if you are a Christian, a traditional Christian, and, and not one of the newly fangled um, theology-free Christians that are going around, but if you're, if you're a true, old-fashioned, traditional Christian, you believe in creation. What else would you believe? You believe that God created the universe. But that doesn't make you a creationist. That doesn't mean you believe in creationism. Creationism is a very controversial proposal which seeks to explain the manner of that creative act. So you might posit the claim that the world was created in six 24-hour periods. Creationism. Or that the world is less than 10,000 years old. Like, apparently, 25% of the Northern Irish population believe that. Uh, we have the highest number of creationists, as a head count, in Western Europe, in Northern Ireland. Uh, if, that, if you consider that, incidentally, biblical illiteracy, whose responsibility is that? It certainly isn't journalism's. It's the church's. Um, but there's a big difference between creationism and creation. And you can, you can hold strong to one without holding strong to the other. Similarly, intelligent design theory. Intelligent design theory. Everyone who believes in the doctrine of creation, in the traditional doctrine of creation, believes the universe was designed. It's an implication of it. Yes? If you believe the universe was designed by a rationality-giving being... God, then you also believe that it's intelligently designed. And, that you, and you also believe, this is a so-called design argument, that you can see that design in the creation. There, are, there is evidence of designedness in the creation. Now, that's not a new idea. That wasn't invent, invented in Florida 10 years ago. That, that traditional Christian doctrine of creation, in other terms, you believe in an intelligent designer, Yes. Simple. But that doesn't make you an intelligent design theorist. There's a difference between intelligent design and intelligent design theory. Intelligent design theory, just like creationism is different to creation, intelligent design theory posits a controversial understanding of how, through scientific methods, you can pinpoint that designedness. You can make a case for a designing being, and then pretend it's not called God, and so, but that's another point. But you can make a case for a designing being by scientific means. That's very controversial. But it seems to me that you can be a believer in intelligent design and a believer in creation without falling into either of those other two camps, and in a way that is utterly and completely consistent with everything we know about any of the sciences available to us. I don't see that as controversial. So those are the tendencies that I'm, um, I'm noting simply tonight, which I, I think are there. And all of those tendencies are sort of formatting tendencies, but the tendencies have a history too, and the, and the history goes back a fair way in, in, in our age in terms of the media's coverage of, of these stories. And I want to focus now just on one example of that. And this takes us back to 1925, to a, a little town of less than 2,000 of a population in Tennessee. And the town is called Dayton, Tennessee. Don't mix it up with Dayton, Ohio. Dayton, Tennessee. And Dayton, Tennessee in 1925 had what is still often described as the trial of the century. 
the trial of the century. It was a very important reason why it was the trial of the century. It was also the trial was broadcast for the first time on radio, this newly fangled thing, wireless. This trial was the first time a radio broadcast live went out across America, all over America. In the history of, of radio, this is a very significant moment. But it meant that you had a massive platform for what happened in that tiny little time. And what happened was the Scopes monkey trial. Scopes uh, is John Scopes, a teacher in a school in Dayton. And the monkey trial is a reference to the debate between uh, the, de- the debate about Darwinism, the monkey trial. John Scopes was prosecuted in this trial because he, and it was a test case, he was said to be infringing a law that had just recently been put on the books, the Butler Act. And that law criminalized the teaching uh, of, of any theories that were question, questioning the divine origin of the universe or of the world. In other words, or how it seemed, the law made it the case that you couldn't teach Darwin, or at least that's what some people thought. So this becomes a test case. Because it becomes such an important test case, this is not long when you think about it after the publication of Darwin's Origin of Species in in, in 1859 and and the massive furore that, that followed that across particularly the southern states of America. This becomes a, 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 a trial that is reported around the world. People are reading accounts of it across America in the newspapers on a daily basis. And they're getting accounts overseas of what's happening. And they're looking to this tiny little place, Dayton, Tennessee, to see what will happen to John Scopes, who is presented in some of the journalism of the time as a kind of martyr to intelligence. What is he doing wrong? All he offers is science lessons to his children in which he informs them of the best consensus science available to us at that time, which is Darwinism on the question of human origins. And in come these religious dictators, these religious oppressors, and they want to put him in prison. They want to, they want to take him out of the classroom. They want to march him off to a cell. This is a prisoner of conscience. That's the story. And into that vortex of uh, judicial excitement comes William Jennings Bryan, who it was one of the most famous people in America. Many people now wouldn't know his name, but they did in 1925. He had run for president twice. He had served as Secretary of State. He was the Hillary Clinton of his day uh, in Wilson's government. He was a Democrat. He was a man of enormous influence amongst particularly the Christian community because he was a very strong Christian. But then, this is 1925, there were a lot of Christians. And so he walks in, in the white corner, William Jennings Bryan. The defense attorney in that case, the man defending John Scopes, was called Clarence Darrow. You should read um, some of the biographies of Clarence Darrow, a fascinating guy, graduate of the University of Michigan Law School. That He's still a man they, they laud there as one of their greatest uh, graduates. He became the most famous defense attorney in America. He was the kind of defense attorney who just rushed at cases that looked unwinnable. That's why one of the books about him is called Attorney for the Damned. Um, if you look like you were going to be beaten, he's there, especially if it was a civil liberties case especially if it would establish a principle that would affect everybody's life. And my goodness, there was a principle here, wasn't there? Free speech? The right of teachers to teach the best available science? So in one corner, William Jennings Bryan, in the other, Clarence Darrow. And of course, this case, the media comes into this case first through, through radio, but also through the journalism of one particular man, Henry Louis Mencken. H.L. Mencken. H.L. Mencken was a reporter with the the Baltimore Sun uh, for all but four of his professional life, all but four years of his professional life. He was one of the great prose writers of his day. His 
His prose is beautiful. It's searingly beautiful in places, but it's also deadly and sarcastic. And he could be nasty. And when he needed to be, he could be classist too. And given the period he was in, racist too. But people looked at him. He wrote a history of the American of the English language in America. People looked to William to to H. L. Mencken in the newspapers for their accounts of this trial because he wrote it with such richness. In fact, I I, I compare him uh, to Christopher Hitchens, who died recently. Uh, and when I was doing a piece on the radio on the day, I got a phone call at seven in the morning telling me Christopher Hitchens has died. Can you come on the radio and talk about Christopher Hitchens in twenty minutes' time? Grab a cup of coffee, quick, think. Um, the, the immediate comparison that comes to mind is he was the H.L. Mencken of our day because that's how he wrote, with passion, with uh, at times cutting wit. Uh, he could cut the legs from beneath people. And I'll give you just an example of how H.L. Mencken wrote. This is his, incidentally, I'm, this is a little book called A Religious Orgy in Tennessee. Uh, this is a collection of his journalism from the trial, and that's, that phrase comes from him, a religious orgy in Tennessee. Day one, 10th of July, 1927. This was published in the Baltimore Evening Sun. Dayton, Tennessee, July 10. The trial of the infidel scopes, beginning here, this hot, lovely morning, will greatly resemble, I suspect, the trial of a prohibition agent accused of mayhem in Union Hill, New Jersey. That is to say, it will be conducted with the most austere regard for the highest principles of jurisprudence. Judge and jury will go to extreme lengths to assure the prisoner the last and least of his rights. He will be protected in his person and feelings by the full military and naval power of the state of Tennessee. No one will be permitted to pull his nose, to pray publicly for his condemnation, or even to make a face at him. But all the same, he will be bumped off, inevitably, when the time comes, and to the applause of all right-thinking men. The trial was... uh, the trial's outcome in the judgment of, of H.L. Mencken was, was already decided. And every day of that trial, he participated in, in, in increasingly nasty, increasingly stereotyping, increasingly caricaturing descriptions of those who were involved, particularly those who were involved in the prosecution side. He hated William Jennings Bryan, William Jennings Bryan with a passion. The uh, American Civil Liberties Union was funding the defense of John Scopes, and H.L. Mencken had private meetings with the ACLU, offering them advice on how they could develop their case. If I did that as a journalist, I'd be sacked. I mean, there is no impartiality in that. He was a participant in this, and in fact, some of the, the key moments of the trial we now know were suggested by him. Uh, and he's reporting on it. So he's a partisan reporter on this thing. But it's beautiful prose. It's, it's gorgeous. You can read it today with a pulse. It's, 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 it's lovely. I wouldn't want to be on the other end of it, but it's, it's lovely. And when all was said and done, John Scopes was found guilty uh, of, of the crime of violation of the Butler Act. But not before... William Jennings Bryan was himself put on the stand. And I do believe this is the only time in judicial history this has happened. When the prosecuting attorney steps onto the stand and becomes a witness and is examined, cross-examined by the defence attorney. It probably wouldn't be allowed in any British court. But it was allowed here. And here Clarence Darrow was taking advantage really of William Jennings Bryan's arrogance in placing himself on the stand as an expert on the Bible. And he drilled holes in him, and he got him to contradict himself, and he got himself uh, to say things that he later regretted, and he pummeled him, essentially, uh, particularly on the age of the earth. How old is the earth? And I believe in the Bible. The Bible tells us the the world was created in six days. And uh, he goes through the order of those days and points out that the sun was created the fourth day and the, the logical contradiction of believing in the first day before you had a son. How do you have a day without a son? 
Uh, and, and then he asked him, how long, how long was a day? Was it 24 hours? And this was a key moment because he wasn't prepared to say clearly that a day equaled 24 hours because, of course, as you know, if, sorry, I'm turning into John Stott now, the, the Hebrew word for day, yom, uh, can also mean era, as in yom kippur, day of atonement. It can also mean period. So a 24-hour yom could mean a thousand years. It, it, it could be a million years or a hundred million years you're kind of giving it away there aren't you on the stand if you're the prosecuting attorney you're starting to sound a little bit more like Darwin I mean they didn't know it was 4.6 billion years at that point uh, but, but he was getting close to it uh, and it, of course it was a, an appeal and all the rest of it but eventually another media an, another form of media steps into this in 1960 when Stanley Kramer the, the Hollywood director um, takes a play that had been loosely based on all of this, a mythologization of it in the play, and further mythologizes it in a movie called Inherit the Wind. Have you ever seen the film, Inherit the Wind? Spencer Tracy plays Clarence Darrow. Looks great. Uh, Poor old Frederick Marsh plays William Jennings Bryan. He looks old. He looks decrepit. (laughs) So, So this swashbuckling Spencer Tracy, you know, looking like he's just about to go and do the Nuremberg trial, (laughs) stands up against a grey, dull, boring-looking old fart of a man, William Jennings Bryan. And and the caricatures are developed further into the mass media. That's a very significant play, uh, movie, incidentally. Belfast Film Festival, I I do an annual annotation of of a favourite play for the Belfast Film Festival. And and that was the first in the series that I did, where we we watched it and examined every scene of it with an audience. And that was a very significant movie, because that was the first film ever shown on an airplane. There you are, Trivial Pursuit question. First film ever shown on an airplane was Inherit the Wind. Why did they choose Inherit the Wind? Because it was that popular. It still grasped the public's imagination in 1960. It didn't win the Oscar. Lost out to Elmer Gantry. But nevertheless, it's a great film. But it's not true to historical fact. If you look at that film, as many people do, and see this as the dramatization of the Scopes Monkey Trial, you're not getting the Scopes Monkey Trial. Uh, a wonderful book, Pulitzer Prize winning book, has been written about the Scopes Monkey Trial by Ed Larson. Um, Summer, Summer, Summer for the Gods, which tells the story, which is vastly more interesting than the mythology of um, the, the prosecution of a free-thinking man. What happened, what really happened in the Scopes Monkey Trial, is that this little town of less than 2,000 people, city fathers, developed one day a commercial proposition. Sitting in a, t- in a little shop in the town, a little store, they decided if we could only bring the world's attention to this town, maybe we could make it something. Maybe we could get some work in here. Maybe we'd get some industry in here, some commerce. Sure, it'll be good for you, Bob, over in your store, wouldn't it? Good for you, John, over in yours. So they all got together. How do you do this? And the Butler Act is there. And someone comes up with the most amazing idea what if we have a trial? And what if we were able to get the world's medias and interest in this trial? And there was born the Scopes Monkey Trial. And uh, all they needed now was was a, a convict. Well, well, how are you going to find a teacher? Because there's no evidence actually that anybody had ever taught this in the school. That's the other thing about it. And, and so they find this guy, John Scopes. He was actually a sports teacher. wasn't a biology teacher at all. Uh, we have no evidence that he ever taught Darwin anywhere. And they persuaded him to be the test case. And he said, yeah, in for a penny, in for a pound. So he agrees to do it. And then they go off to the ACLU. You guys have been looking for a test case and that. You don't like that Butler Act. Uh, you've been looking for a test case. Come to Dayton, Tennessee. We've got a teacher here. Uh, why don't you come up with some money and we'll, we'll go and get that Clarence down. We'll go and get that uh, uh, William Jennings Bryan fellow and we'll, we'll get this thing going. You know, all, all kinds of... This was a constructed spectacle for commercial reasons. And that's how it played out. And uh, John Scopes went up on the trial and he went through it at all and uh, everyone played their part. 
and then it became a Hollywood movie, and, and we're still talking about it. We've had other trials in American history since then, which are often called Scopes 2 or Scopes 3, the most recent one to do with intelligent design theory. Uh, the the Kitzmiller case is sometimes even now described as Scopes 4, even though it's nothing to do with creationism. It's intelligence design theory. So it just shows you how a media representation of something can be utterly and completely false. And you have to dig below the media representation of something to get to what actually happened historically. And what actually happened is much more complex, much less simplistic, much messier, and much truer to life. Because your life's messy too, isn't it? My life's messy. That's what life's like. It's not as simple as these narratives. Um, so I'm, I'm going to stop soon. You'll be glad to know. Um, what, what I'm saying with all of this is when you encounter a religion and science story in a newspaper, in a magazine, in a documentary, on a radio program, or anywhere, in a blog. You need to engage your mind towards some of these issues. You need to ask if some of those besetting tendencies I outlined towards simplicities of narrative, uh, towards oversimplification, towards conflict, uh, and the others, are they at play here? Ask some questions about it. Ask if you can detect biblical or scientific illiteracy in the communication of this story. Uh, and, and if the story seems important enough, get a book. Read it. Get a book which has a decent um, publisher attached to it, because there's usually a peer review aspect of those kind of books. And read it and find out if this, if this stands to reason. Now, what we've got now in the United States, actually, is that, that there are organizations like Media Matters, who um, are, are checking the tabloids on a daily basis and writing it up in blogs. And what they'll do, and we've got some people doing this tabloid watch in Britain as well, because you see this every day. Um, they'll just take a tabloid newspaper or a story, for example, and uh, while everyone else has read it and thrown it away, they'll go and check the facts and then print what they've discovered. And often the truth is quite different from the facts. So I would, I would encourage you to challenge in your own mind those impressions that have been left there, that have been layered onto you bit by bit by our, our fragmented media, that this story of science and religion is always and inevitably a conflict story. It is not always and inevitably a conflict story. And even when it is a conflict story, it's not necessarily a conflict story of the kind it's represented as. It may be a more complex, complex, complex story. And if you're a person of faith... And you're looking at these stories and you're saying, each one of these is withering my confidence in my faith point of view. Uh, I, I have to say, you need to do a bit more work <laughs> to look at this. Because honestly, when you scratch the surface, it's not the only thing that's going to be withered. <laughs> the story can sometimes fall away completely. Anyway, I've, I've said enough. I better stop. I recommend that book, A Religious Orgy in Tennessee. You can get it on Amazon. That's a great title. It's probably my favorite title of a book ever. I'm going to take questions. How much time do we have? Have I talked too much? Half, half an hour. Um, questions, keep them clean, keep them legal. <laughs> Apart from those provisos, everything else is fine. Go ahead. And you've got the mic.